I'm going to be honest. I don't feel qualified at all to host a conversation about being an adoptive parent of a black or brown child in a world of deep-seated racism. I'm a white guy with white biological children, and the honest truth is that in the past, when there have been surges in movements for racial equity, I have been shamefully disconnected, shamefully detached. And to my black and brown brothers and sisters, I want to repent of my apathy, my lethargy, and my silence. It's time for humility. It's time to listen. It's time to take a close look at the harmful narratives that have been the basis for my myopic understanding of our nation and its oppressed people. It's time to remove the old lens I have used to perceive the world around me and put a new lens in its place, one that sees a broader picture of injustice and actively listens to its victims to know how to become a part of the solution. Black Lives Matter. Full stop. There is no disputing it. It's a fact. It's the shortest possible statement that simply yet powerfully asserts that black lives being made in the image of God have as much value as any other lives. For many of our transracial adoptive families, race is a daily conversation. We wanted to provide a voice of education and encouragement as families navigate the best ways to talk with their own children about all that's happening in our world right now. So we reached out to an expert and friend of AGCI. You're listening to Together by AGCI. I'm Dane Arnold. Today, we're going to have a conversation about race and adoption and how white parents can prepare their black and brown children with the foundation they need to feel supported and loved. Our guest today is a training specialist with the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development at Texas Christian University, where her main focus is instructing professionals working with children who've experienced trauma in trust-based relational intervention or TBRI. She is an adoptive mother and very recently joined the board of directors at All God's Children International. Amanda Purvis, welcome to the podcast. Yay, thank you guys for having me. This is such an honor. Of course, we're excited to have you. For our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with TBRI, although if they have been in communication with AGCI for any length of time, they probably are at least familiar with the acronym. Can you summarize what it is and maybe even what got you interested in TBRI in the first place? Sure. Yeah. Um, TBRI stands for Trust-Based Relational Intervention. And I think a lot of adoptive parents, um, if they haven't yet read The Connected Child, they've at least been told to read it um, (laughs) because it's a very well-known um, adoption book out there. Um, but The Connected Child is kind of um, the beginnings of trust-based relational intervention or TBRI. Dr. Karen Purvis, um, who I have no relation to, um, and Dr. David Cross joined forces um, and created this intervention, which in reality is an attachment-based, sensory-rich, um, developmentally respectful, and trauma-informed practice of how do we help heal trauma Um, And originally it was intended just for kids, um, but the more research and science that's that's to all of this, the more that we realize that ultimately it's about healing um, relationships and brains, no matter what the age. And for me, my personal kind of connection to TBRI is when I was actually a little girl, um, I would ask my parents for an older brother 
all the time. Um, and they were like, we don't like, we're not sure how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I was like, well, that's like, that's what I want. Like I want an older brother. Um, and what I think that was kind of like my heart stirring, like I, I knew that adoption was going to be a part of my story from Mm. a very young age. Um, and so from that, um, I went into social work, um, in my career. And when I was dating my husband, I actually, um, said to him on our very first date, I said, um, I'm going to adopt kids. So if that's not something you're into, I need to know that now. And (laughs) and he was like, uh, (laughs) what's your middle name? Um, that's good. You lay it right out on the table. There's no no questions. (laughs) And he basically, like, he actually, like the first words out of his mouth were, how long do I have to think about this? (laughs) Uh, Because apparently it had not been in his heart since he was a little kid. Um, But needless to say, um, he did think about it and eventually said, I am open to that um, in building our family. So I was in social work. Um, We had begun an international adoption. um, And it was at the time that everything was beginning to close down and become really difficult. And I was a caseworker, um, in a large county in the Denver metro area. Um, and my caseload was kids who had um, been in the hospital as a result of their abuse. So I worked directly in the hospitals. And um, from that experience, um, every day I would come home um, and obviously distraught and upset. And my husband would say, you know, what's the best part of your job? And I would say like working with the foster families. I absolutely love these foster families. Um, and one night he just said to me, how come we aren't doing foster care? Hmm. Um, and I'd never thought about it before. Um, so that's kind of how we began our journey, um, into foster care and adoption. Um, while I was in school getting my degree, I studied Daniel Siegel very closely. Um, and that was around the time that Drs. Purvis and Dr. Cross, um, released the Connected Child book. And so I read that, Um, and just fell in love with TBRI. So I looked them up and I I basically followed them around. They did these conferences called Empowered to Connect. And back in the day, they would travel to different cities and do these live conferences. And so I went to a bunch of those. Um, Like I was like a roadie kind (laughs) of. (laughs) Uh, And in the meantime, my husband and I were just saving our pennies. Um, He was a youth pastor at the time um, and I was a social worker. So it really was pennies that we were saving. Right. Um, and I eventually went to training, um, and then began training TBRI in Colorado, um, locally, just basically to anyone who would listen. Um, I would just go and train, 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 um, to the point where then the Institute recruited me to join their team of trainers. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of my personal journey in TBRI. And then obviously in our home, it, has completely changed our lives. Um, my marriage, (laughs) my own personal life, um, as well as for all of the kids who have, um, come and gone, um, from our home. What are some of the elements of TBRI that have had such a broad effect on your just relationships in general, like with your husband and with, with other people? Yeah, I think, um, just really, truly understanding attachment, um, and what it means, um, to provide secure attachment and to be securely attached, Um, it brought light into the areas of, um, both my husband and I's own childhood and Mm. how we interpret behaviors today. Um, I think so much of TBRI, oftentimes when people approach us, um, and say, you know, teach us TBRI, they, they want it because they have a kid that's really difficult. 
and they're really wanting us to help change the kid. Right. Um, and what TBRI has done for us is it's changed us. Um, it's changed who we are and how we see behaviors and how we see um, needs and things like that. Um, so that was really the huge change for us. You know, the, the more I hear about our TBRI trainings that we've been doing in Columbia and just you know, hearing peripherally about the the care groups and the uh, the caregivers themselves are really kind of coming to an understanding of the way that they grew up and their worldview, therefore, and and all of that, and how that affects the way that they have relationships with everyone else, and and then when they're able to actually deal with their own trauma in their in their own lives, like the the radical shift that that makes in their ability to care for others it's 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 really astounding it is you're right i think um for me too i remember like the first time i sat and listened to dr purvis and dr cross i looked at my husband um and i said this is it and he's like what is it and i was like <laughs> that this is how we're supposed to do this whole thing called the gospel mm. um for me it was like this really beautiful explanation of how to be the hands and feet and how to love our neighbor and how to love ourselves and how to, you know, um, honor God. And so to me, it was, um, it was just this natural bridge of all the things I'd always believed and been taught, but I wasn't exactly sure, like, what does it look like in my own life? How do I walk it out? Um, And TBRI has been that for me in my faith. The thing that really strikes me and it actually is really helpful for me is I feel like it gives you a great deal of empathy for others. When you start to see it in terms of trauma and, you know, I am not aware of the things that these people have grown up with. And so it for me, it's just like kind of a helpful lens to, to at least be able to look at other people and say, oh, my gosh, like, they, you know, they've probably had all sorts of challenges that I'm just not aware of. And it at least allows me to kind of give the benefit of the doubt in those situations. Yeah, that's really it. I mean, I, um, I think when you know that you've truly, um, understood TBRI and it's, you know, kind of effect on you is when there is a behavior, whether it's someone cutting you off, you know, on the highway mm-hmm. or, you know, a kid in front of you rolling their eyes or, you know, whatever it might be, um, that when we see, like, when we can see that behavior is the language of unmet need mm. and that idea, um, just really kind of is foundational, um, for how we then approach relationships. You know, speaking of that, you, you recently wrote, um, a blog post on the TCU website, um, that was called that behavior is the language of unmet needs. And, and it really addresses pretty directly, you know, the challenging times that we're in right now, you know, for, for a lot of adopted families, the last couple of weeks have been, you know, especially difficult as the, 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 the struggle for racial equity has been amplified in your home. What has been the effect of the killings and the protests and the upheaval, like for you and for your kids? Yeah. Um. I think like when we take this TBRI lens to all of this um, and we think about being trauma informed, like really what you're asking people to do is like go to that next level. Mm. So like society would say, you know, what's wrong with you? Trauma informed would say what happened to you? Mm. I think racially or historically trauma informed would say what happened to you and your people and what's still happening right now. Um, And so I think like when we 
when we take that lens um, as to everything that's going on right now, I almost just say like, of course, like, of course we're here. Of course we have people who are infuriated. Of course we have people who have felt voiceless because they have been voiceless, Mm -hmm. you know, for centuries. Um, So of course we have these um, behaviors and these, um, you know, on both ends, right? We have white people acting out based on the beliefs that they have. And we have black people and brown people acting out based on their beliefs. Um, So yeah, of course we're here. So like in our home, um, how has it affected us? (laughs) It's affected. I mean, it's, it's super duper heavy. We have, um, we have three black kids, um, in our family, um, two of whom are men, um, and young men, I should say. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, this is not a new discussion in our house. This is not, this isn't the first time we've talked about this. Um, this is something that's talked about every single day in our home. Um, cause we really have taken on, um, like the Fred Rogers, <laughs> what's mentionable is manageable. Mm. Um, and just this idea that um, we're going to talk about this stuff at all times. Um, and I, I really think that that's foundational, um, especially as white parents raising black and brown kids. Um, I have to mention this stuff all the time in order for them to feel safe in my home um, so that they know how I feel and what I believe. Um, because otherwise, the only assumption that they can make is that what they see on the news or what they hear on TV is how I, as a white person, feel. Right. Yeah, I can totally see how if you're not talking to your kids all the time and reaffirming that, um, you know, what what they see in the media is is not the only thing that people feel and is not how you feel. Um, it seems like that would be wildly important for your kids, especially. Yeah, and I think... Um, like I know in your intro, you said, I, I don't remember exactly what you said, but something like, you know, how as white parents, we can make sure that our black and brown kids feel loved in our homes. Um, and I would say that that's probably one of the biggest burdens that we have um, as adoptive parents that we we will not fulfill. Mm. <laughs> and I think that the, the notion that we can as white people um, provide just blanket, like I'm going to help you feel comfortable in your skin. We cannot do that on our own. Yeah. Um, I think that we have to create communities that represent our children um, in order for them to feel that. Um, and that's a bridge that some of us chose knowingly um, when we adopted. Some of us were, you know, ourselves included, fairly ignorant on the journey. Right. Um, <laughs> like didn't know that we were what we were saying yes to. Um I know for us, um, like when we got into foster parenting, um, we, we said, you know, any, we would accept any child under, you know, whatever the age was, I think it was four at the time. Um, and you know, we got 11 black boys in a row. And so I finally asked a question because I was a caseworker and I knew that all these kids coming in are not black. They said, well, you're actually the only family on the list in Denver who will accept black. Oh, wow. So then suddenly I had to become an expert and, and I can't be, I can't be cause I'm a white lady. Um, and so just that journey personally that we've had to go through, um, is not something that we necessarily went into because we thought, oh, we'll be really good at this. Yeah. Uh, 
or we, you know, we have all the tools necessary to do this. Um, I, I never felt that way. Um, and I still don't feel that way. Um, because I can learn all I can, but like you said earlier, um, I can only learn, I can't experience what it's like. Um, so. I I think it would probably be useful for us to speak to the other adoptive families that are within the AGCI family. And, um, you know, what are, what are some of the things that you feel like those parents should know? Like uh, maybe we can assume that they feel pretty lost in all of this. What, what, what can people do at this stage? Yeah, I would say um, first, like, welcome to the party where none of us know what we're doing. (laughs) um, So I will offer um, maybe not facts, but at least what we've tried or things that we've learned along our journey. um, And and just in hopes that we can all figure this out together. Um, But the first thing I think that is really important is that we can no longer pretend um, that racism doesn't exist or that color doesn't matter. That's not true. Um, Like we have to acknowledge it. We have to put words to it. I grew up in a family of social workers. Um, I lived a lot of my elementary school years in Washington, DC. So I was, um, you know, a lot of times the only white person in the room. Um, So I I don't think I ever heard um, colorblindness until later on when I became a Christian, actually. Mm. Um, So, but I will say, I don't think the heart behind that is wrong, Mm. right? Like the heart behind the the thought is, you know, we should all be equal. We should all, um, you know, love each other. Um, The the harmful message is that we're all the same. Um, And I think, and that's not true. I mean, developmentally, what we know is like around 18 months of age, like kids will already gravitate to people who are the same color as them. Um, they will pick out things that are the same color. Like, so, um, and that's how our minds work. Like we sort things, um, and we, um, you know, we notice differences. Um, and so noticing a difference isn't bad. (laughs) It's a, you know, like it would be silly for me to say to my, you know, my black daughter, we're, we're the same. (laughs) <laughs> we're not like, like we're very, like we look very, very different. Um, and, and it would be silly for me to say that to my biological daughter as well. Um, so I just think, um, the hope, um, is that we can point out differences and point out sameness. Right. So mm. like, even when we talk about, um, like with little kids, like three to five years old, um, is like when we start to point out things like M&Ms, look, these are all different colors, but they're the same on the inside, just like us, just like our family, just like our, you know, just like our church. Look, everyone at our church, right? Like we all look different. Some of us are tall. Some of us are short. Some of us are brown. Some of us are tan. Some of us are, right? Like, and we point out, but inside God, you know, like God created our hearts, God created. And so allowing those differences to be okay, because what ends up happening in our minds, if we don't talk about how differences are okay, is it then becomes otherness. Mm. Um, and otherness is when it can be dangerous. Yeah. Um, and so if we're constantly speaking that different is okay, um, then that is a, is a much um, more healing you know, message or place to start from, really. As parents, you know, understanding even just 
how racial development occurs. Um, if you, for any parent, whether you're raising, um, you know, kids that are the same color as you or not, um, understanding racial development is important. Um, and so educating yourself on that and what that looks like. So under three years old, um, as a parent, like we're just hoping to introduce different books and movies celebrating diversity. You know, like we want to have friends in our circles um, that represent all different types of people. Um, And then mostly we don't want to impose adult meaning, right? So like if a kid says like, I'm not black, I'm brown. Um, Like for a three-year-old, that's a really normal response to someone saying, you're black and I'm white, right? Because they look at themselves and they say, I know what color black is. And that's not my color, right? Because actual like racial development hasn't occurred yet. Mm -hmm. It's purely color-based. And then three to five years old is like when they begin to kind of um, expand that. And it goes from, you know, brown and tan to all these different shades. And um, so then like as parents, you know, we want to be, especially if we're parenting black and brown kids, we want to be picking things Um, and complimenting things that are brown. Mm. Because this is when we can begin to um, change the messages or kind of buffer the messages that they're going to get from society. Um, So like if I'm coloring with my, you know, four-year-old, I might say, oh, I want that beautiful brown brown crown over there. Mm. Or, um, oh, I love this brown sweater. Or, oh, I love this, you know. And so we're going to make positive comments about brown thing or you know we're going to pick the root bear barrel candy and say i love brown candy it tastes so good or right like we're gonna make sure that we're complimenting um things that are brown with um like beauty um because they're gonna begin understanding the um societal messages around this age um that white is beautiful and dark is not yeah Um, And so we want to buffer that. Mm -hmm. And then we want to encourage their curiosity. Um, So like when they ask questions, we don't want to discourage them uh, about not asking questions if it makes us uncomfortable. So like if they say, you know, like, why is that girl so dark at the park? Right. We want to say, isn't her skin so beautiful? I'm so glad you noticed. Yeah. See how your skin is light brown and her skin is dark brown. What about inside? Right. And then we can use like the M&M analogy or, And so we want to encourage it. We don't want to say like, oh, we don't talk about that or we don't yeah. ask questions. Right. Like we don't want to shut down their curiosity because the message there um, is that differences are negative. Mm. And so we want to make sure that when they begin asking those questions, we really encourage it. Um, And I even found this in our own life. Um, One of my biological sons was born um, with three fingers on each hand. And when he was little, kids would, you know, and he was hanging around little kids, little kids would always ask questions at the park or at a play date. And it was so interesting because I would watch their parents when they would ask questions. Um, And so many of the parents were so uncomfortable Mm. um, that they would immediately shut down their children. Um, And so I would, you know, always intervene and say, I'm so glad you asked, or I'm so, you know, and I would put voice to it and put words to it um, and let them know like, yeah, this is how he was born. And just like you were born with blonde curly hair, he was born with brown hair and three fingers and you have, you know, and, um, 
and just encourage it. Because if we're talking about it, we're saying like, yeah, we all are different. Isn't that awesome? How you're different than me and how I'm different than Papa and how, right? Right. Um, So don't shut them down, like in that three to five years old, um, especially when they begin to notice differences. Um, And this will be... um, this will be like when the beginning of those adoption questions will start too. Um, and just so you guys, like everyone knows, like three to five years old, like they still live in like that fantasy world. So they might get, you know, they believe things can be changed through magic. Mm. So um, especially if if their whole world was changed, right? Like if, if we're talking about adoption, like I went from having these caregivers and living in this country to now having these caregivers and living in this country and speaking a different language. And so uh, it will be normal for them at this age to say like, oh, when will my skin look like your skin? Or can you do the, you know, um, those are normal developmentally appropriate. It doesn't mean they feel negatively about their skin or, you know, any of those things. Um, I remember when my daughter was probably four, um, I told her, she actually went with me. I was going to get a spray tan because we were going to the beach Um, And she's like, what are we doing? And I was like, well, I am going to get a spray tan and it's going to make my skin like a much more beautiful brown color because right now it's not a beautiful brown color. (laughs) And I remember I came out of like the spray tan booth and she said, I'm so sorry, mama, but it didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, like, I think she thought I was going to walk out black, you know, right. Like her, and and um, she was she felt so bad for me, <laughs> and I said, I know I feel bad too. I wish it had worked better, um, but but it, they they live in that kind of magical world, um, and so don't be alarmed um, if they ask questions like that. Um, and I think that's probably the most important um, at that kind of three to five years old um, age. This is also when they're going to begin. Um, like having conflicts around this, you know, kids will say things and it will hurt their feelings. And so we want to make sure that we're really, um, open to like listening and helping them out, um, and helping them through those things. Yeah. It seems to me, you know, I I don't have adopted kids. I have three very white children and it seems to me that while, not all of what you're talking about is applicable to my kids, but even talking about to my four-year-old, I feel like I could mention to him, you know, pass me that beautiful brown crayon. And it wouldn't necessarily re-emphasize something about his own self-worth, but it could help him to, you know, feel a, a little sense of the the value in others. Like, I, I feel like there is maybe even a little bit more of a broader application for some of this for even kids that are that are not adopted that don't have the same kinds of um, skin color visibility that that my kids do. I think you're exactly right, Dane. I think that's um, I think that would be you going from being like an inclusive parent to being an anti-racist parent. Like Mm. you are from the very beginning, like talking to your kids about this stuff and pointing these things out and um, whether it pertains to your immediate family or not. Um, And that's so powerful. And then like, I think from ages five to seven um, is when they begin to identify race accurately. Um, And this is why like we talk about what's mentionable is manageable. Um, especially, um, if we are white parents raising kids that aren't the same color as us, um, it's really important that we prepare them because when they start going, um, to school, 
we don't want them, you know, like for in the class, you know, let's say it's kindergarten. And, you know, one of the black girls says to my daughter, like, hey, come over here because the black girls are sitting over here. And I don't want my six-year-old to say, I'm not black, I'm brown. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, like I want her to know um, and I want to prepare her, which if she's grown up in a white bubble, um, her saying that doesn't, like, it wouldn't mean anything. But immediately when she says that in kindergarten with all the other black kids, they're going to know, right, that something's different. Um, And so preparing them um, is really important. So around age five to six is when we start to talk about race. And we're still doing it in that um, way where we're pointing out differences are beautiful, right? Like there's nothing negative about differences. So we start to do that. And that's like when they begin to understand permanency and genes. And so lots of adoption questions begin to arise um, around this age. Uh, Again, especially if your kids have been in a bubble and then, you know, they see a black girl and she's picked up by a black mom and a black dad every day from kindergarten. They're going to say, wait a minute, why doesn't my family look like that? Um, And so that's when a lot of the questions um, begin. And so it's really important that at this age, we are making sure that they feel always comfortable in asking us those questions. And in order for our kids to feel comfortable, we have to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so that means that we have been having these conversations with our friends, with our spouses, long before our kids are asking us those questions. We're going to stop here for the moment, but don't worry, there's a lot more to come in part two. So take a minute to digest all of Amanda's wisdom breathe and join me for the second part of my conversation with Amanda Purvis available now wherever you listen to podcasts.